Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. Then Amalek came and and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you this now officially fall feeling weather Sunday. We've sort of dragged our feet back and forth between hot and cold. Here we are. Uh, I don't know how you're coming in this morning, but I pray that the Lord will meet you here as we are continuing on in our series uh, in the book of Exodus. Our, Our message this morning will be based on the passage that Eric just read for us out of Exodus. Uh, We've been going through a series, if you're just joining us, called Out of Darkness into Light, and we're nearing the end of it now. We've been looking at how God heard the cries of his people when things in their life were just awful, how he answered, and how he delivered them out of that soul-crushing oppression, brutality, genocide that was life in Egypt, and he's delivering them now out of that and into something new, into the light of relationship with him. And so we've been looking at a pivot in the story from that that immediate act of deliverance to now what happens when you're actually out, when you're on the other side. And that for Israel is life in the wilderness. Last uh, time, two weeks ago that we were in this series, we looked at how God delivered his people again in the wilderness in, in a miraculous way, providing for them in a context where life is just hard, where it's easy to be dissatisfied and grumble, and yet in the midst of their complaining, despite the fact that he just set them free from hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, they're complaining. In the midst of their complaining, God graciously provides for them to draw them closer into relationship with him. And today we're going to see God graciously providing again in the face of something that they did not expect. This is a surprise attack. 
And God is going to miraculously deliver his people again in that unforeseen circumstance. And I want to look today at what this has to say to us about the ways that God responds when we face things that we're not expecting to face. I'm sure each of us in this past year, in this past two years, in the year to come, will face, have faced things that we didn't expect. Things that rock you a little bit, things that you're not sure how to respond to. I want to talk about what God does in those situations through looking at exactly when that happened for the people of Israel. And we're going to do that through looking at three things. First, the the unexpected threat, the thing itself that's troubling. Second, Moses' response to that. And finally, God's response to that. So the unexpected threat, Moses' response, and God's response. Before we get into that, would you pray with me? Father, we take a breath for a moment. We've been hearing about you in our service, been hearing from you in your word, and now we come to pause and reflect in front of you, to be silent, to be still, as your word says, and to know that you are God. And so as in this moment where we pause, we pray that you would fill up the silence, that they would be your words that we hear that you would be the one who speaks, that it would be, in fact, the power of your Holy Spirit that is alive and active and speaking, that encourages us where we need courage, that gives us strength and perseverance for the things that we feel like are just going to wear us out, that, that gives us a softness when we'd be tempted to just to put up walls and to be crusty against you, against others. I pray that you would soften us where we need that, that we might hear from you, that we might know that we can be safe with you. I pray that you would do these things now in your son's name and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If not, there should be some in the pew in front of you. We'll go back through the text a little bit together this morning. Well, we're going to start with looking at this, this unexpected threat that God's people are facing we're introduced to an attack by a wilderness people group, the Amalekites. Uh, We don't really know much about this people group, and in fact, almost all of what we know about them in the history of the world comes from just this section of Scripture and a few others. Uh, We don't know why they attack. We don't know exactly what they're about, what they're angry about, why they're attacking God's people here. But we can really understand what it would be like to be in the shoes of the people of God when this is happening. Uh, It would certainly be stressful. It would be discouraging. And this is how things are for us too. And we face things like that, things that make you afraid, things that make you stress, that make you freak out a little bit. And we can see that they respond in this way by, if you were to flip over to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 18, it looks back on this very moment and it says that the people were weary and worn out when the Amalekites attacked them. They weren't at their best. They were not fresh. They were not revitalized. They weren't hungry and ready to jump into things. They were not ready for a fight. They were tired. They had been through a crazy few months in getting to this moment and being set free from slavery. They were were anxiously and with stress watching God dismantle society around them to set them free. At the same time, as at least for part of that, they were being increasingly oppressed and beaten for hoping that God would do exactly that. That is stressful. They were chased after they were set free by Egypt 
almost to the point of death, so they had their back against the sea, and they had the world's best army in front of them, and all their kids next to them. They left everything they knew, everything that was familiar, to go to a place where nothing is familiar, where none of their people had been for hundreds of years. They weren't going to visit family in the wilderness. They didn't really have family in the wilderness. They were just out there with God, not knowing anything, If you've moved here recently, it might feel like the Boston area in general is a wilderness to you. If you were driving, it certainly is a wilderness of uncertainty, unpredictability, and chaos. These are things that we experience too. There's a weariness to that. All those things wear you out. Watching society, watching your world change around you. Having people be cruel to you. Leaving everything you know and starting over. These are things that take energy out of you that make you tired. They're worn out when the Amalekites show up. They are so tired, and now what do they get? Not rest, they get a new problem. It would feel extremely discouraging. Maybe you've been in that situation. You've had a long year. You've had a long few years. You've had a long life. And now it's just one more problem. One more big, awful thing that you did not expect, that you don't want to deal with, and you are just tired of it. makes you weary, makes you feel like you can't catch a break. Like, when is any of this going to end? I don't need this, God. It's hard. But maybe even more than being just weary when these things happen to us, it's discouraging because it's unexpected, because we didn't plan for it, because it's not familiar to us, and that would certainly be the case for Israel. This is, this is brand new to them. They have not been threatened before by someone who is in Egypt. They are coming out of hundreds of years of oppression for the first time into freedom, for the first time feeling hope and opportunity, and now they're learning This world isn't safe either. We came from a place that was very unsafe, and now I'm recognizing there are even more people that want to hurt me. There are even more dangers out there than I knew to expect. I thought freedom would mean not struggling, and now this is just struggle after struggle. What is this thing? What is this life supposed to be, God? Why did you even bring us out of here? As we, as we start to sit in the seat of this people, more and more we can hear how they're grumbling and complaining would be things that I would say, that you would say. What are you doing in bringing me through this, God? Why am I out here? The new world doesn't feel necessarily more safe for them than the old world. And that would be designed discouraging, tiring, frustrating. And life can feel that way sometimes for us when we learn that there are more problems than we knew to expect. That life is less safe and predictable even though we're in somewhere new that we thought would be a little safer and a little more predictable. We find out that that there really isn't a safe space completely in the world, not to freak us out, because God, Scripture says, is our safety in the midst of these things. God's going with them. But if we're looking to to just find a safe place to lay our heads where no one bothers us, where nothing is hard, that place only exists in heaven. It doesn't exist anywhere here. It's not Fiji, as beautiful as Fiji would be right now. 
It's not some sort of mythical safe place where everything is good and fine and perfect. That doesn't exist. If we're going out looking for a place where it's not going to be hard and challenging, we're going to be looking forever. And when we face that kind of realization that, that, that things just continue to be hard sometimes, not all the time, but we can face unexpected threats and problems, those things make us want to do a few things. They make us want to give up sometimes. There are too many problems. They're too big. I'm out. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to give myself to this relationship anymore. I'm not going to be committed to my family, to my work, to my school. I'm out. It's over. That's natural. It's natural to feel that discouraged. We cannot just give up. We can do the opposite. We can double down on our own efforts and say, okay, this has come, but there is no way I am letting this get me off track. I've just got to suck it up and deal with it. I'm not going to let myself feel the loss and the pain of it. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just going to push through and force through it. Or we can put up walls and barricade ourselves so that we don't feel any of the potential loss that might come our way in this world. We stop making new friends. Some of our CTK folks, Boston folks, you've been here for a long time, that can feel very tempting. I'm not gonna keep making new friends because I know people are gonna move on. I'm gonna barricade myself against a feeling of loss when that relationship isn't what it was. Maybe I won't face loss if I don't invest, if I don't trust anyone. But really that is a loss in itself because then you're just alone. Maybe you can see yourself in some of that. I can see myself in a lot of that. That when unexpected things, unexpected problems come into our lives, we tend to do some of those three things. We give up, we double down, we put up walls. Interestingly, that's, that's not what Moses does here. And I'm not going to set Moses up as this be like Moses and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but to see what Moses sees that makes him respond in a different way. So I want to look at our second point here. And if, to Greg's point, you didn't get your sermon worksheet, now's the time, right over there. But Moses responds not by doing any of those three things. He doesn't give up, he doesn't double down, and he doesn't put up walls. Moses responds by looking back to God for help. That's what verse 9 is talking about when he says he's going to hold up the staff of God on the next day. That's the same staff that God had given him back in Exodus 3 to start working these miracles and to bring the people of God out. This is a staff that has been working in power, that it's been a vessel of God's power amongst God's people for months now. God used that against what was for Israel the unexpected threat of generations-long slavery. This is Moses looking back in faith on a way God had previously helped them in the face of unexpected problems, demoralizing threats in Egypt, and now the Amalekites are threatening God's people, like Egypt did at the Red Sea, in an unexpected, dangerous way. And what does Moses do? Moses is raising his staff again. Different problems, same hope. Different struggle, same opportunity. Moses is looking back. It seems step by step he was learning how to look to God for help when you face unexpected and discouraging things. 
See, this is not Moses inventing something new. This is not Moses just taking up an opportunity on his own without consulting the Lord and just doing whatever he wanted. No, this is Moses looking back on how God delivered them in the past and trusting that that God would do those things again. Moses is starting to learn to apply God's past faithfulness to his present circumstances. I want to say that again. He is learning to apply God's past faithfulness, what he has done, who he has been, to his present circumstances where he can't see clearly who he will be. He can only trust and hope in who he will be. He's relying on what that past deliverance has taught him. He's relying on that relationship that they have, on that resume that God has shown them, and putting faith that that God is going to do those things in this moment. That's what Moses is doing here. He is looking back in faith. He is not giving up. That's what he wanted to do in Exodus 3. He said, please, God, anyone but me. I've got enough problems. I don't need more problems. Please, I'm out. He's not doubling down on his own efforts, which is what he tried to do in Exodus 2, working justice by his own hands, killing someone that was oppressing someone else. He's not doubling down on his own efforts. He's not putting up walls, which is basically what he did, living out in the wilderness for 40 years by himself with a small family. No, he's not doing the things that he has done before. You would expect Moses to run and hide and give up. You would expect Moses to try to do it on his own. You would expect Moses to just peace out and put up walls. Moses is learning something new. God is showing him, the Spirit is moving him to look back on what God has done and put faith in God to do it again. That's what raising the staff is. It is a moment of trust. And what's so powerful about that is there is no guarantee, there is absolutely no guarantee in this text that says to Moses, raise your staff and I will deliver. God does that many other times. He says, Moses, this is what you are to do. You are to throw your staff down. You are to pick it up. You are to raise it. And this is what I'm going to do. God doesn't speak until verse 14. Moses does this without a guarantee that this will work. He has no promise, no declaration from God that God will deliver if Moses looks to him in faith. And at times it must have seemed like God was not going to deliver. Moses gets tired. He can't do the planking all day long, and he puts his arms down. Verses 11 and 12, he gets tired and they start to lose. But win or lose, it seems like, live or die, when faced with unexpected, life-threatening problems, Moses is putting his confidence not in himself, not in the things that he can do. He's putting his confidence in who God has been, with the hope that that's who he will be. This is Moses saying, if I'm going out, I'm putting my confidence in the Lord. If my people are going out, I'm putting my confidence for their deliverance, for their help in the Lord. If my life is going to go off the rails today, so be it, but I am putting my confidence in the Lord. 
Not in all the things that I had tried for decades before and didn't get me anywhere. Why does that happen for Moses? It happens not because of who Moses is. Moses is those three other things in the past. It happens because of what he sees God do in and among them. What he has seen makes him want to put his faith in a God like that to save. What God has done is good enough to change him from relying on his old ways of giving up, doubling down, or putting up walls, to trust in God over himself, over despair, to make him pick up his staff again. Moses is starting to learn to take hold of something much stronger than despair or self-reliance. He is learning to take hold of faith. And that is the one thing that survives all your unexpected problems. That is the one thing that lets you get off the floor when you have been knocked down again. That is the one thing that lets you stand when everything around you that you've put hope in your life has crumbled because you have faith that though those things pass away, there is a God who shapes the earth, who stands in your corner and will raise you up. That's the confidence that Moses had by seeing God at work. And we have the benefit of 3,000 years more of seeing God at work. Most particularly, we can exhibit a greater faith than Moses because we have a greater witness of God's deliverance to look back on than Moses did. We don't just have the history of the church. We don't just have a relic of God's power in a staff. We have God himself, Jesus Christ, come to earth to deliver us from all our unexpected problems in the flesh. We have Jesus stretching out his hands on the cross to do battle against the powers of even greater, th even greater threats than, than we could imagine even greater threats than, than we would possibly think about standing up against because we liked these things. Jesus stood up against our idolatry and our sin, things that don't just threaten us from the outside, but that teach us to self-destruct by being hungry again and again and again for things that don't satisfy, teaching us to fill our souls on ash and sand, things that slip through our fingers and crumble in our hands, and we know that, how many times have we tried again and again? How many Christmases will it be where you have had a Christmas list and you are hungry for a new one? How many years will it have been that birthdays have gone by and you've been hungry for something? Relationships have come and gone. You've been hungry for something and you are still hungry because that thing is not, was never meant to be what would ultimately fill your soul. And yet, sin and idolatry makes that thing the ultimate thing in our hearts. And we just can't stop chasing it to our own destruction. Jesus came to do battle with our idolatry, our self-destruction, 
And the only way that would both crush that power within us and let us live by letting himself be destroyed so that through faith, just putting our hope in him, we would be united to him there so that when he died, we died. And in the same way that it says the name of these people would not be remembered, when you are united to Christ by faith, that old you is taken away from the earth and your name as idolater and sinner and self-destructor is no longer remembered remembered by God. Do you know that God sees your sin that way? That he is not still keeping a record saying, remember when in 1987, for those of you that were alive then? Remember when in 2006? He's not saying remember when, he's saying, I don't remember the name of that person anymore. God sees you as new in Jesus completely new, having a new name, a new identity, having the old you passed away. That is the power and the solution of God for the threats of our lives is to put them to rest forever and to give you a new name. See, we have a much greater confidence than Moses did. We might feel like if I saw God do a miracle in front of me, then I would believe. If I saw God divide an ocean and a half, then I would believe. Scripture tells us that Moses would have longed to see Jesus' day when something bigger than outside threats was crushed, something that was an inside threat was crushed. We can look back at the cross like Moses looked at his staff and put our faith in a God that delivers even if it means dying to himself, being inconvenienced for you, not making you be inconvenienced for him, but dying to himself to save you. And in fact, we're not just invited to do that to look back at God's deliverance in the past. We're commanded to do it, and that brings us to how God responds. It might be easy to miss in the face of seeing what Moses does, but God responds, yes, by winning the battle for them, but but more importantly for you and I, perhaps, he does it by commanding Moses, verse 14, to write all this down. He tells Moses, write this down. When God tells Moses to do something, it's not a... It's not a suggestion. It's not a, hey, if you have time, what do you think about doing this? That's not how God relates to Moses in Exodus. When he tells him to do something, the expectation is, you will do this. I am God, you are not. Please just go with the program. This is not a suggestion. He gives Moses orders to write this down and tell it to the people so that they remember it. The implication is that they in the future, those who are not yet the people of God, who didn't get to see this day, will need to know this. We need help to remember that this is who God is. It was important not just then, but for the future. It was important to look back on and see what God does when you face more than you expect. That we need this testimony of who he has been for the things that we'll face, and we won't know who is he going to be in that. We won't have confidence. How is this going to turn out? We need to be able to look back to see what happens when you put your confidence in him to fight for you. 
He has him write this down. Scripture is written down. It is a testimony so that you and I might look back and know that this is who God is. This is who he will be. He will keep fighting for you in the future. If the greatest fight is already settled in Jesus, what will he not do for you now? And he may not answer all of our prayers in the way that we want. He may not give us all the circumstantial change that we want. But he will give you exactly what you need so that you will always be close to him. Because if you want him, that's ultimately the circumstance that matters most. To be close to him. And sometimes it's a painful journey to learn that. It's been painful for me. But he will always lead you to be close to him. He wants you to know that through Scripture, not just invited to hear that. We need to hear it. Moses has to write this down so that future generations like you and I, people who were never there, who never saw it, might hear that this is who God was, this is who he will be. This is what the Holy Spirit uses in our lives to encourage and strengthen us and put us back on track. We'll talk about how we might apply some of that more practically in a moment, but I just want to acknowledge you might be feeling a little skeptical at this point, particularly if you're not Christian. You might feel like that's a nice story, but this didn't really happen. It's just a story. What confidence can I get from just a story, from a myth, from a legend, some, some nice embellishments? I get that. This is a place where I want it to be safe for you to be skeptical, to wrestle with those things, to have honest questions. But I want us to look at the text just a little bit more closely in light of that. Because it doesn't read like a made-up story when we pay attention to the details. Yes, the events are supernatural. It implies God working a miracle, but it does not read like a fairy tale or a legend. Think about the awkward details in this. Moses has a faithful idea, but he's too weak to carry it out. Verse 12. He can't hold up his arms all the time. That's both real, it doesn't make Moses out to be superhuman, and also deflating to Moses as this great man starting this new great movement. It shows him as less than strong and a superman. It shows him as maybe spindly and weak or just not superhuman in some sense. It reminds me of, I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl commercial a few years ago with Jason Momoa. And he goes home and he's talking about home being his comfort place where he can just be himself. I can just be me. And he just takes off his muscles and his arms and his legs and his six-packs abs. And he is just this spindly little pencil of a person sitting down going, ah. That's sort of what this moment shows you of Moses. Whatever you thought this great, brawny, muscular, powerful man Moses was in Egypt is now all of a sudden not able to hold up his arms long enough to help his people. This is not Moses the superhuman. It's deflating. It's awkward. It's this strange arm-holding-up scheme to save God's people. And the God who just wiped out the most powerful country in the world is now depicted as depending on Moses' arm strength, a rock, and a couple other guys to get this done. 
that doesn't feel like the strongest picture of how you make a case for this legendary epic person, this legendary epic God. If you're just fabricating a legend or a story of how great your God is, of how great Moses is, you wouldn't include a weird, awkward plan like this. This is not the way to say Moses is amazing. State media for places like Russia, North Korea, don't include details of weakness for their leaders. They show them shirtless on horseback and playing golf and always hitting a hole in one. That's what you do when you want to make up an aura of power. But here's a picture with specific awkward details of a guy who's not strong enough to get the job done. And the fact that this text records these details in ancient literature where legend was more the norm than the exception suggests that this is not a legend as difficult as that is for our Western secular conception of the world to to hold on to. This reads more like a historical account. It at least asks us to wrestle with the idea that perhaps this actually happened. The awkwardness begs us to consider that God can, does, actually show up in power. That Moses really walked in faith, really got tired, needed help, and God miraculously worked through Moses' faithful, awkward attempts to follow him. These details beg us to consider that God does actually deliver, that maybe there is something more going on in this world than you have accounted for so far, and that that maybe you have in some sense that you have given up, that you have put up walls, or you have doubled down on your own ways rather than considering whether God might actually be out there that it's been more comfortable to stay in the familiar patterns than to step out into the vulnerability of what if that God is out there and I am right here. So I want to ask you today to consider what if he is out there? What if he is worth putting your confidence in? And to give us one quick point of application around this, I want to invite all of us, whether we believe or not, to look back. Look back on stories of God's faithfulness in Scripture. Know Scripture better. Go to some of the stories. Read through Exodus as we've been reading it. Read through the stories of how God met His people. Think about your own life when you faced new challenges and new problems. How did God show up then? Or ask yourself, how do you deliver others? Other people I know, other people in history, what did he use to help them? How did he show up and help me? Who are the people that I'm overlooking that God put in my life when I most needed them? How does God's deliverance on the cross more than all that speak to his commitment to be for me? Am I trusting that he really meant what he said there? that he really meant what he said in Jesus, that Jesus is a real and true expression of his commitment to me, of all people, me, with all my brokenness and junk and inabilities and mess, me, that commitment that he really meant what he said. Look back on these things and let them speak to the things that you are facing right now, the things that you will face in this year to come. So you can start learning to respond to new challenges, not by your own strength, not by shutting down and turning out, but putting your hope 
Letting God invite you, move you into putting your hope in God's deliverance. Because God's help, when we look at it, looks like dying to himself to save us. That's the paradigm of God's commitment to you, that he will die to himself rather than lose you. What more could he say to you now? He's committed to meeting you in those unexpected problems because you weren't looking for a Savior when He came, but He came all the same. In the same way, if you're not looking for a Savior today, you are in the exact same position that each one of us finds ourselves in when Jesus meets you face to face. You're not looking for Him. He draws you to Him. He is eager to meet with you. If you've never looked to God to deliver you, or maybe you've looked away for a while, I want to invite you, the text calls you, to look to this God, to consider that this might be real, to see that he works in deliverance for people striving through awkward ways to follow him. I invite you to put your confidence instead of in despair and shutting off and putting up walls and doubling down, to put your confidence in the past of who he says he is, of who he has been, of the grace that you have seen in him. And I want to invite you to do that, not just for you, but for me, for us. Because God tells Moses to write this story down so that other people could hear about how God moved in their lives so that they could know through someone else's experience that God is real, that he moves in power, and that he cares about you when you don't know what will happen next. We need your story if you don't believe. We need your story to see how God moves in your life that we might be encouraged that he is real and powerful and cares about the unexpected problems. It's not just for you that you believe. You believe that we might believe. And we believe that you might believe also. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little space for you to pray, to talk about the things that are on your heart. If you don't know where to start, maybe just to say, God, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to make sense of here, but to just ask God to maybe turn your heart to the ways that he delivers, to turn your heart to look back to the ways that he's delivered you before and to say thank you for that, or to, to confess the ways that you've just turned away from God's deliverance, that you've ignored that, that there are so many other things that you'd rather chase. But let's talk to him for a moment. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would hear these prayers and that you would draw your people close to you. In your name we pray, amen.